Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. God, you are why we are here. God, you are an awesome God that has showed us much grace and mercy, though we did not deserve it. Father, you are the one who provides and shows mercy to your people. And God, we pray now as we try to explore some of those topics in this next few minutes together, God, that you would be glorified and honored in the way in which your word is uh, spoken about. And Father, that you would take it and you would edify your people. And God, if there's any that don't know you, that you would redeem and save them through the reality of knowing that you are a God who is gracious and merciful. And we pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. I had two hopes this morning going into preparation for this sermon. And the first hope was to have a sheet of paper for you for all of the many verses that I'm going to read. I failed you in that one. And the second one was to have slides on here that was going to follow what I was saying. And I failed you on that one too. And so I apologize. But if you are the type to take notes, we are going to be preaching on the God who is gracious and merciful. And I do have about 20 verses that we're going to read as we explore these topics. And just to be honest, you're probably not going to follow all of them. So I would encourage you to write them down. Or I've offered this in the past. I will be glad to email you a PDF of my sermon after the fact if you want to follow it again and ask any questions. Okay. But as we've been going through this series this summer, I wanted to say first and foremost that our primary way of preaching here at Redeemer is beginning in chapter 1, verse 1 of some book and preaching it into the very last chapter of that book. And we do that verse by verse and we do that slowly and intentionally, um, but feeling a need to break away from that for just a little bit of time this summer. We really desired, uh, the elders, the other elder and I, really desired to kind of dig deep into the idea of who is God. Uh, because we were preaching through Acts, and in Acts, what we saw was this reality of uh, the dependence upon God uh, by the holy by the disciples displayed through prayer. But then we also see the work of the Spirit in the life, their lives, and the lives of those whom which God was bringing to Himself, and really just some other things that just unfolded, not in anybody's life particularly, just in general in our society, and just in life itself really just desired to understand God better. And the hope in this study is that God would renew us to better understand who He is, which should lead us to know, pray to, worship, and serve Him more faithfully in our personal lives, but also as a church together at Redeemer. And so, with all of that being said, this morning... Now, these are not the most extensive topics as we looked at the immutability of God or we looked at the God who knew, knows, and decrees. And then we looked at the God who is supreme and sovereign, the God who creates. We looked at some deeper topics than the graciousness and mercifulness of God. Regardless, some of the topics that we're going to unfold together, they're just not going to be explored to your liking, most likely. Uh, and I'm of the conviction that one day, each and every one of us will take a last breath or Jesus will return and whatever the two may happen. And what's going to happen and unfold at that moment is we're either going to spend an eternity with God or away from God. We're going to either be under the eternal love of God or the eternal wrath of God. And for those who are with God forever, guess what we're going to do? We're going to spend all of eternity trying to understand and know God better. And we'll spend all of eternity failing at that because he's an infinite God and we're finite creatures. And so in the next 30 minutes, you're not going to get all of this, and I'm not going to be able to explain all of it well. 
But what you can do is over the meal together, or if you have my number, or if you want my number, you can call or text or conversate over the meal, any questions that you may have that come up in this. We welcome that completely. And so this morning, as we get into the topic of the God who is gracious and merciful, uh, the reason why this is next in the order of sermons in which I'm unfolding them is primarily because of last week's sermon. We looked at the holiness of God. Um, and there's a lot of things you could talk about after the holiness of God. You can talk about the, the goodness of God displayed in the love of God and in the wrath of God. And why is God's wrath holy and how is God's love holy? We could get into all of those things. But as a progression of the gospel, I think the most natural conclusion for us to go next is after we understand who God is, and that is that he's holy, then it is right for us to understand he's also a God who is gracious and merciful. And so because of that, the sermon's going to look slightly different than some of the other ones we've looked at, because what we're going to do is kind of a quick recap of last week's sermon, look at a few scriptures, uh, and just kind of the major theme. But we're also going to, we're going to just sidestep just a little bit, and we're going to look at who is man. Very briefly, but who is man? And then from there, we're going to move into the graciousness and the mercifulness of God, Okay. And so let's begin by going back to last week at the God who is holy. And I'm just going to read the four scriptures I used as the introduction there. And it's Revelations 15.4. It says, who will, We who will not fear, O God, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteousness acts has been revealed. That God is holy and he reveals himself through his righteous acts. Exodus fifteen eleven says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That God is a God that does wonders and reveals himself through his holiness and his awesomeness and his gloriousness. Isaiah 6, 3. I love this verse. I said that last week. This, this moment in which Isaiah is given this vision of God and he visions the throne room of God and there's angels flying around God. And what is their task? It's, as Isaiah 3 says, and one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The one last one is uh, Psalms 89, 35. It says, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness... I will not lie to David that God's so holy, there's nothing greater than himself to swear to, so therefore he swears to his holiness. God is holy. Why do I want to address that again this morning? It's because we're going to look just now, very briefly, the depths of who man is. And the reality is, man is sinful. Uh, you can put whatever word that you want to put after that. You can put depraved, sinful, full of iniquities. You can put enemy of God. You can put uh, uh, one who committed treason. Whatever word you wanted to put there, that is who man is. Listen to some of these things. They, that man is sinful. Psalm 51.5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's not talking about his mother was out of wedlock when he, she had sex with her, her, her boyfriend or husband and produced him. What he's talking about there is that when he was born, he was born into sin. The imputed nature of sinfulness by Adam. Mark 7.21 This is Jesus speaking. 
He says, for, for from within, out of the heart of man will evil thoughts and sexual morality and theft and murder and adultery. And that list continues. That from the depth of who we are, we are sinful. So often, we as individuals and even our society likes to think of individuals as good people that do bad things sometimes. But what I think what Scripture would teach us very plain and clearly is that after the fall of Adam and Eve, we are not good people that do bad things, but we're in all reality in comparing ourselves to the holiness of God. We are bad people that only are able to do good things because the grace and mercy of God. So we're sinful individuals. And what that then does is it separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Now this is speaking of the Israelites and the people of God. But the reality is still the same for that of the believer, the unbeliever. Is that unless we are redeemed in Christ... We are separated from God. Why? Because we have sinned against God, a perfect and holy and righteous God. But not only are we sinful and not only are we separated, but we're unable to save ourselves. Matthew 19, 25 through 28 says, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Talking about the rich young ruler here. But they're still asking Jesus this question. Then who can be saved? Then who can do this? Who can actually be saved then, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things is possible. Then Peter said in a reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on a glorious throne, you have followed me and will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But let's focus on the first two there. What is Jesus' response to the disciples when asking them who can be saved? He says it is impossible of man to be saved, but only of God. See, if God is actually holy, as we exposed last week, and He is, then that is the foundation of understanding who He is. And it's right that as we look at the holiness of God, that we have to take a step back and look at the reality of how sinful we actually are. See, if I compared myself to your lives, or you compared your lives to mine, you would begin to look good. Because I am sinful and you are sinful. We may have different hang-ups, but we're all doing bad things. But when you look at the holiness of God, the lack of error, the lack of sin, the lack of fault... And a God that has created all things. And a God who speaks into existence. And a God that we're made by, owned by, accountable to, and dependent upon. When we think of that God, we are wretched individuals in need of something. And this morning, as we walk through the rest of our sermon, we're going to see what God provides for us. And that what we're in need of. So we're going to begin by looking at the God who is merciful. I'm sorry. We're going to look at the beginning with the God who is gracious. And so let's begin by just understanding some things about the, the grace, just grace itself. 
See, grace, as we spoke of a few weeks ago, there's a few kinds of attributes of God or characteristics of God. There's the incommunable and then the communable. All right? The communable means that God has bestowed it upon others, that we can look at God and learn how to be that, or God allows us to be that. So, for, for example, God is a loving God, and we can be loving individuals. I love my wife. I love my children. Last week, I professed my love to Noah, apparently, in the middle of a sermon, and we didn't realize that was planned. Um, we can love individuals, right? We can be a people who love. Why? Because God has communicated that attribute to us. God is immutable, meaning God does not change. That is an incommutable attribute because we, we cannot not change. God, can, God does not change, but we constantly change. I mean, as uh, this past week, I was looking at pictures of all of my kids two and a half years ago, and they have most certainly changed. And in that other sermon then, I talked about how Sarah has married about 10 or 12 different people over the last 10 years because I constantly change. We as individual change, God does not. The reality is there's this incommunable and communable attributes. And this morning, the grace of God is a communable attribute. We can be gracious to one another. And an example of that is found in Genesis 33, 8-11. This is Jacob and Esau's kind of narrative coming to an end and it says this it says Esau said what do you mean by all this company Jacob's a fearful man he brings all of his warriors with him as he introduces himself again to his brother why because he stole his birthright and all those things so he's introducing himself again to his brother and how does Jacob respond Jacob said answered to find favor in the sight of my lord but Esau said I have enough my brother Keep what is for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if, if you have favor in my sight and accept at my presence for my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. And then the last one here, he says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Jacob was looking for the grace of his brother Esau after many years has passed after he sinned against him by taking his birthright. We can bestow grace upon others in moments in which they do not deserve the grace that we have to offer. But the reality here is the grace in which God gives us is not the same. It is not on the same playing field. We, God does not have to give us grace. God does not have to do that. He does not, we don't even deserve the grace of God. And so just a general definition of grace itself is grace is the free bestowal of a kindness on one who has no claim to it. Grace is offered to one who does not deserve it or have, have the ability to obtain it. Okay, But specifically thinking of God's grace, it says the Bible generally uses the word to denote the merited goodness of the love and goodness of God. To those who have forfeited it and are by nature under the sentence of condemnation. What very basic definition of that would be is that the unmerited offer of salvation to those who have not earned it or deserve it. There's a guy named, apparently for a very long time, I've been pronunciating his name wrong, but his name is Babnik. He wrote this about this. He says, ascribed to God. Grace is the voluntary, unrestrained, and unmerited favor that he shows to sinners and that instead of the verdict of death brings them righteousness and life. Grace is the moment in which God redeems his people. Grace is offered to those who would believe and trust in him. Grace is what happens when one comes to Christ in salvation. 
So I want us to now, as hopefully we kind of understand the idea of grace a little more, maybe we can understand the extent of God's grace. Because I think this is when it becomes very, very good news to us. We see first and foremost is that grace is how redemption is offered. I think this is a very common verse, but Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The reality here is the only way in which we can have redemption offered to us is by Christ Jesus. The only way we can be saved from our sins and reconciled to a Father is by the free gift of God through eternal life in Christ Jesus. I want to read that one more time, actually, because I want to read the second part in verse 24. It says, Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith that was to follow God's righteousness because of His divine forbearance. He has passed over for more sins. That by grace we are saved by faith alone. So first and foremost, we see the extent of God's grace is displayed in offering redemption to those who would believe and trust in Him. The second one is the grace of God is, for, is through the proclamation of the gospel. We've been walking through Acts, so I thought Acts 14.3, we haven't quite made it there yet. But listen to the, what, what God does in the accompanying of the gospel for those of the early disciples and even Barnabas and Paul. It says in verse 14, verse 3, So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Speaking boldly of what? The gospel. Telling people about the, the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. And, and what does he continue to say? He says, Who are bore witnesses to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. That through the grace of God is accompanied with the proclamation of the gospel. And God is the one empowering it. We see the vast part. It says, granting signs and wonders done by the hands. Why was signs and wonders accompanied by, by the proclamation of the gospel? Well, so that individuals know that this was a true gospel. Another way we see the extent of God's grace it is by grace sinners received the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, but it is the gift of God. The grace of God is a gift from God. It is not something we can earn or be good enough to receive, but it is rather freely given to us. This, for example, my boys had a birthday party yesterday. Okay, And birthday parties, we all know what happens until you get to about 19, and then it ha magically stops happening, right? And it's that you have a gifts. And they give to you and they receive some cool things and they receive some video games and some money and all those things. But, you know, afterwards, this funny thing is I didn't make them like go to Nick's house, for example, and work in his yard to receive the, the gift in which he gave them. They're not going to go and cut his grass now that he gave them a few video games to earn the gift, right? It's a gift given to them. It's something that they freely received after the offering of an individual, the grace of God is a free gift of God, which we cannot and should never seek to earn. It is something that only God can do for us, and it's something that we have to trust in. 
By grace we have been saved by grace alone, and it's a gift of God. And this is a very similar idea, but it is by grace that we are justified. And justification is really this big word that means by the grace of God, we, God no longer sees our sinfulness, but sees the righteousness of His Son. Titus chapter 3 verse 7 says, So that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is by grace we are justified and will receive eternal life. And then I think this one's more applicable even in our everyday lives. But it's by grace that we receive spiritual blessings. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But to all who do receive him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And as children of God, we receive the grace of God, but we also see the gifts of God in our everyday lives. James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Because of the grace of God, we continue to receive spiritual blessings that grow us to be more and more like His Son. And the last thing, and this is just the reality of the already not yet, for those who have trusted in Jesus and have been redeemed by Jesus, you have received the grace of God and He has redeemed and He has saved you, but you have not yet made it to heaven. It is not yet your, your gift to receive. You received a, a promise of it and we're going to renew that promise through the, the communion this morning and the covenant which God has made with us. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it's a gift of God. We have been saved, but there will be a moment which we're eternally saved in heaven. Now that is already accomplished for us. There's nothing more we have to do. God has redeemed. God has saved us. It will happen. It is sure of that. And I am sure of that according to Scripture. But the reality for us is that those are already not yet. And by grace alone, God sustains His people. So that we will inherit that one day. I want to speak very plain in this. Is as we look at the holiness of God. And as we look at the, the wretchedness of man. The biggest way in which God's grace is displayed for us. Is that centuries ago. He sent his son into the world to be born, born of a virgin birth. That would live about 30 years begin to do ministry, traveling, proclaiming the gospel, healing people. And what that did was it just made everyone mad that was the religious leaders of the day, and they sought to kill him. And in seeking to kill them, they were very good at what they did, and they accomplished it. In the sense that they nailed him to a cross, he suffered, he died, he was laid in a tomb, but they were not good in realizing that he was no just, no just man, but he was God himself. So in three days later, he rose again, because he had no sin. And sin was created for that of... And, and death was created of that of sin. It's a byproduct of sin. And so three days later, Christ rises again, conquering sin and death in the grave. And if we trust in that Jesus to save us, if we trust in the perfect God-man to redeem and save us from our sins, it is by the grace of God that He does so. It's by the grace of God we can trust and believe in Him. It's by the grace of God that He even offered His Son to die for us. It is by the grace of God alone we are saved. There's nothing else that can redeem and save us but God's unmerited favor on our lives. You can't earn it. I cannot earn it by reading the Bible every day of my life. I cannot earn it by seeking to share the gospel with everyone. I cannot earn it by discipling as many people 
I cannot earn it by doing enough good things. There's not a, a scale here of good and bad. That's just one gate going to equal out. Why? Because God is holy. And one sin against God is deserving an eternal damnation from Him. And so the only way we can be redeemed and saved is by the grace of God offered to us through Christ Jesus. God is a God that is gracious and has offered that to us. But the reality of that is that is only applied to those who will trust in Jesus. It's offered to many but it is only applied to those who trust in Jesus. The grace of God and the opportunity to receive the grace of God ends in the moment in which we take our last breath. Mercy is slightly different. And that's why I group these things together. Is they're similar, and a lot of times, especially in the New Testament, we see them grouped together in verses. But the mercy of God is something for all people. It is something not for just God's people and not for this, just those who will be saved and have been saved, but it is for those that all people that have lived. Scripture would tell us that the, the rain falls on the righteous and on the, and the, and the unjust. It's kind of like um, in, in Caledonia where I live, there's a lot of farmers apparently. Um, I meet a lot of them working at the post office. And, you know, I was talking to one guy that, one day he was just declaring to me that it was by the mercy of God that he received rain and that his crops grew and all of those things. And then I talked to another guy the next day and he contributes all of his success to the rain itself. But the reality is rain comes from God. It's a mercy of God on the, the farmer that trusts in Jesus and the farmer who does not trust in Jesus, right? And it's the same in all of our lives is that the mercy of God is something that is bestowed to all people in different ways, in different forms. And so we're going to look at the extent of God's mercy in a moment. But before that, I want to explain once again that this is also a communicable attribute, meaning that we also can display mercy in our lives. In a very similar story in Genesis 30, a very similar time frame at least, it says, But Laban, uh, Laban, Laban, Laban said to him, If you have favor in your sight, I have learned by the divisions that the Lord has blessed me because of you. In this request, he says, if I have found favor in your sight. So what he's requesting is the mercy on his life. He's requ requesting for Laban to have mercy on him so that he can go and do his own thing now. Instead of continuing to work for wives and things of the such that we saw Jacob going through. Mercy is something that we can even display in our lives. And so what does the word mercy mean? It means to show goodness in moments of misery. Now, we don't speak like that because if I ask you how your day's going, and it's like, you, most of us aren't going to say, well, it's been a very miserable day, right? Uh, or I'm living in a lot of misery now. But mercy is simply showing goodness in misery. And so, it's, you know, there's oftentimes we may show mercy to someone that is having a horrible day. And so we can display mercy in our lives. But what does it mean that God shows mercy? Is the goodness or the love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress? God being merciful is a God who takes care of individuals with what they're going through. A guy named Burkhoff put it this way. He says, in his mercy, God reveals himself as a compassionate God who pities those who are in misery and, every, and in every ready to receive their distress. That God is a God being the creator of all, has a general love for all people and a general mercy for all people. We oftentimes refer to this as common grace, but I think it would be better referred to as common mercy. 
that God takes care of all individuals to some extent or another, that the mercy of God falls on all. That same guy, Babnik, says it this way. He says, In the New Testament, God, the Father of mercies, has revealed His mercy in Christ, who is a merciful high priest and further shows the riches of His mercy and salvation of believers. So the ultimate way, just like grace, the ultimate way in which God shows His mercy is through Christ. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit. Before then, I want to see the extent of God's mercy. This, I think, is where we can find much joy and peace. Certainly we can in the grace that is freely offered to us through Christ Jesus. But I think even for the believer, this is more of the everyday practice of trusting in God. And so when we look at the extent of God's mercy, first and foremost, his mercy is bountiful. Psalms 57.10 says, For your steadfast love is great in heavens and your faithfulness in the, to the clouds. Many of you guys know what it's like to be in the clouds, right? But most of us do not. In, the, in this day and time, certainly had no idea what that would be like. And so what they're saying here is that this immeasurable, the mercy of God is greater in height and width and depth than from the ground to the sky. That God's mercy is bountiful. It is great. It is amazing. It is huge, essentially. So God's mercy is bountiful. God's mercy endures forever. This is why we can sing a song like uh, Amazing Grace and we can get to the fifth, I think, fifth, uh, fifth verse or sixth or seventh. Amazing Grace is quite a long song where it says, and when we have been there 10,000 years, as people who live 60 to 80 years, if we're good and like if we're lucky, we cannot imagine 10,000 years. That's why he uses that in that song. And why will we may be maintained in heaven for 10,000 years? It's because the grace of God, but the mercy of God, where he allows us to be saved in Christ Jesus. It endures forever. Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, he says it this way, and they sing, responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Why are they singing? Why are they responding? Why are they praising and singing to the Lord? It says this, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. We just walk through that as a community group. And why were they praising God? It's because God was merciful enough to allow His people to come back to Israel. And why were they worshiping? Because the foundation of the temple was built. Just the foundation, just the concrete slab, if we're going to put it in today's terminology. It wasn't even the building itself. There wasn't any, any worship going on in the building. It was just the footing of the building. And they're glorifying God because God was merciful for them because they had been in captivity for 70 or so years. They're worshiping God because God's mercy endures forever. Now we do see here in this translation where it says uh, His steadfast love endures forever, but it's very similar terminology when you look at Hebrew. The third thing we see is the extent of God's mercy. Is that it is shown to those who fear the Lord. In Luke 1 50, it says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I've got one in between this, but I'm going to go ahead and get to it. But it's even those who do not fear the Lord receive the mercy of the Lord. 
Luke chapter 6, 35 through 36 says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, especially expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind and to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as the Lord the Father is merciful. That He is kind and merciful to the great, ungrateful and the evil. God's mercy is not only for those who fear the Lord, but we certainly see that principle in Scripture. So for us as believers, as we fear the Lord, there's a promise of God's mercy. But we also see the mercy of God bestowed on to those who do not fear Him, who are evil, who are wretched in their acts because they have not returned to Jesus. But we also see, and I think this ties into the analogy of the farmer earlier, we see the mercies of God go across all of His works Psalms 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. God is providing mercy to all, and specifically through the creation in which He has made for us. Micah, when he prayed to the Father after he led worship through song, the first thing he said was, Thank you, God, for the sunny day. Kind of wish it was a rainy day, to be honest. Need some more of it, but... I am thankful that it is a sunny day. God's mercy is shown to us each and every day in different ways and different means for those who believe and those who do not. The greatest way, the greatest way which God has displayed His mercy is in Christ. And in just a moment, we're going to take communion together and we're going to have the great opportunity to remember that even greater. But remember the definition of mercy. It is the goodness of or love of God shown to those who are in misery and in distress. In misery and in distress. And the reason why I mentioned that right there, right now, is if the gospel stopped, that God is holy and man is sinful, we would be people of misery. We'd be people of distress. If the gospel stopped there, It wouldn't be gospel at all because gospel simply means good news. It'd be horrific news. It'd be bad news for us. It would be hopeless for us because if God is really holy and we are really sinful and we're deserving the wrath of God and judgment of God because He is a righteous God that cannot leave the unrighteous to go without judgment, if the gospel stopped there, we would certainly be people of misery and in distress. And my prayer is often when I share the gospel with people, or maybe even in this moment or on video, whatever the case may be, is that you've come to the realization that God is holy and man is sinful and deserving the wrath of God. Man, that's a miserable place to be. Man, the distress, the weight of realizing your sin and the, the horrific nature of that sin that is given to us by the grace of, God, grace of God in our lives that allow us to understand that holy, man, that's a moment of misery. And that is a moment of distress where then it pushes us to realize who Jesus is and in realizing who Jesus is, call out to God to save us regardless of what we have done against Him in the work of His Son. So the greatest way we see the mercies of God displayed It's through the work of Christ, the great high priest that is merciful, that is no longer standing to make sacrifices for sins, but sitting at the throne room of God as he has made one one sacrifice for sins that will last forever and evermore.
and that was his own body, and that was his own blood. We're going to take a moment now. We're going to transition to our time of communion. And I'm going to walk through the steps of that in just a second. But before I do, I just want to say very plainly, is this here is a display of God's grace and mercy on our lives. This is a way that we as a church have decided for now to recognize and remind ourselves of the physical elements of God's grace and mercy on our lives every month. And so we're going to transition to that. But I want to say, as we kind of end this thought, it's very plainly this. As we look at the application of God's grace and mercy, salvation is the high point of it. Like if there's one thing I wanted you to walk away with now is that if you don't know Jesus, you need to trust in Him because of the grace and mercy of God that He is offering to those who would do so. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, the, the high point for you that I want you to walk away with is very plainly, you did not save yourselves and it is only what God has done for you. So you should live in a way that glorifies God by proclaiming His gospel, making disciples, resting in Jesus, but it also leads you to praying to Him greater and studying Him more and worshiping Him more and serving Him greater. That the holiness of God and the graciousness of God and the mercy of God leads us to these things because when we truly understand who God is, what He has done for us in Christ Jesus, then it leads us to worshiping Him. But low points of application would be this. You're going to find yourself in moments of misery and pain and sorrow. But if God is a God that is supreme and sovereign, in some way, somehow, He knows exactly where you are. And knowing exactly where you are, He has a mercy that He wants to provide for you in that moment. It may not be to deliver you from the circumstances, but to provide a peace for you within those circumstances. So my encouragement to you in that would be very plainly, lean into the grace of God in your personal life as you continue to fail and fall into sin, lean into God's grace, not as an excuse to sin, right? As Romans tells us, but as a hope that is offered to us in Christ. And as we find ourselves in difficult and hard moments, lean into the mercies of God. They renew daily for us. So now, as we transition to communion,